This week's episode of The Risk Equation features mature themes. There are accounts of violence, drug abuse, and other sensitive subjects. For anyone located in Australia who is seeking help for substance abuse, domestic violence, or mental health issues, search for Reach Out, White Ribbon Australia, or dial 1-800-RESPECT. After evading police in the UK, escaping to France through the Turkish Mafia, and eventually fleeing to Ecuador, Peter Tritton had found some stability in South America. But after a short period, he was arrested and charged. The length of his sentence, which had yet to be confirmed, had begun. Peter was in limbo before being transferred to Quito, a prison located in the north of Ecuador, and one known for its fierce gang rule. So the prison in Quito was very much um, of a style of the old Victorian prisons in England, you know, uh, um, a centre uh, from which the wings sort of uh, come off like, you know, like the spokes of a wheel. It was, you know, a Victorian building built in, I think, the 1850s, uh, and very much similar to the prison that I'd been in, in uh, that I'd done the sentence in, in Gloucester. So it was kind of felt sort of homely. <laughs> Uh, I was quickly moved on to a wing that was mainly for foreigners, uh, which was good because, you know, there were a couple of British people on there, uh, French, Germans, Arabs, Syrians, Lebanese, whole, whole mix of um, foreigners. To some extent, it was similar to a British prison, which was uh, quite bizarre. The guards would come in at about eight in the morning. They would do a roll, so they would come around all the cells. They would unlock the doors, and then they would just you, they would count everybody at, at the door. The wing would then be open um, all day up until about five p.m. You'd be able to go to other wings um, during the day up until about five p.m. when you had to be back on your own wing. I think you had to be back, yeah you had to be back on your own wing for lunch as well. And then you would be locked up at 9 p.m. Uh, in your cell. And that would be the day done. During the day, you could pretty much do what you wanted, really. Um, you could get pretty much anything brought into the prison. You could get shopping brought into the prison from outside. So you could get whatever food you wanted uh, brought in from a supermarket. Um, you could have a TV in your room, you could have aircon, DVD. Some people had satellite TV. Some guys had computers, you could have a telephone.
but I mean, all of this you sort of had to pay bribes for, pay the guards off, you know, a couple of dollars here, a couple of dollars there, just grease the wheels. So not only were you, did you have things like that, but you, also, you could also have guns in the prison. Your visits would come in all day Wednesday from 9am till 5pm, all day Saturday, all day Sunday. And every other week you could have uh, a female or two <laughs> uh, stay the night in your cell. If you owned a cell, this is, you, you, you had the right to buy a cell there, which cost about two grand. We would invariably get some cocaine in, there would be alcohol, and have quite a big party in the cell. <laughs> Problem was, it would it would flip on a coin, and you know, from being a normal day, suddenly you would hear gunfire, and someone had, you know, someone would have been killed. I remember on one occasion there were some visits uh, in the cell with me, foreigners. I had about like ten foreigners in the cell with me, uh, and you know, I was talking them through, you know, the daily uh, prison routine and telling them a few stories, trafficking stories and whatnot. <laughs> And suddenly gunfire erupted in the exercise yard behind my cell. And two people had been shot dead in front of their visits by one guy. He'd, ha he'd been handed two pistols and literally walked up to two guys that, were, you know, that they wanted to kill and just killed both of them on the spot. I remember on another occasion, on a visit day, there was a, a known informant was targeted for assassination, basically. And um, a Russian friend of mine came and, and collected me and said, look, you, know, you won't believe what's happening on, on the wing that he was living on, which was D-Wing, where it was mainly uh, Colombians, but also a few foreigners. He said, look, they're killing uh, the raid, the informant. So... Um, whoever had contracted the killing had brought in what they called a commie muerta, which was uh, a life sentence prisoner. A commie muerta means eat the dead. So they would be brought in just to do uh, contract killings, basically. So I went over to see what was happening and got there, and this guy was slumped on the floor, you know, with a pool of blood around him, and, and this guy stood over him just repeatedly stabbing him. And this was on a visit day. The guy on the floor bleeding, with the other one over him stabbing him, was surrounded by a group of visitors, men, women, kids running through the blood, and the guards just stood there watching it happen because they'd been paid off. And it was a very chilling sight. The guy stopped stabbing him halfway through after about 10 or 15 minutes, and the guy wasn't dead yet, and the guy that was doing it went back to his cell put the knife on the table, sat there, smoked some crack, crack cocaine, came back out of the cell and started stabbing the guy again until he was dead. And this process took about half an hour. 
the most frightening thing about this was that there was nowhere, no one to turn to in these prisons. If you ended up in a, in a, in trouble in there, you couldn't turn to the guards because the guards were invariably either paid off, or they were being paid by the gang. So you know there was nowhere to run to. The second prison that I was in, which was Guire Kill, that I got transferred to, was even worse because there the gang literally controlled everything. Peter, how does that affect you when you're you're faced with the reality that you could die at any point and that a lot of the people who are around you don't care about you, you don't mean anything to them, you're a no one here and you have a particular set of skills, but at the same time, you're very, very far from England. And I'm just interested in, in what does survival mode mean for you in that point in time? How do you How do you try and create safety in a world that's like that? So in Quito, because like I said, it wasn't as bad as Guayaquil, uh, what I did there was um, quite quickly sort of ended up taking over the wing to some extent that I was on and developed a, formed a group of foreigners around me, Russians, uh, Italians, and formed our own little gang. And I made a deal with uh, some Colombians that I became very friendly with that we would operate together, us and the Colombians, bringing cocaine into the prison. And also, um, I quickly realised that if I was in some way valuable to these people, I, you know, I had potential in the future to assist them in trafficking large quantities of cocaine. They would then have some reason to protect me. You know, I would I would have value for them. And also, insofar as, the, you know, the way that I sort of went about organising the foreigners and organising our little group and taking control of the sale of cocaine on the wing and the alcohol and selling cells, I ended up buying a few cells and renting them out. You know, I just put myself in a, in, in a position, or at least I thought a position of some sort of control. Now, that actually ended up backfiring on me to some extent because of the Arab that was actually officially in control of the wing took umbrage and didn't like the way that I was going about things and instigated my transfer to Guayaquil prison. Now, at the time, I was also trying to escape from Quito by digging a tunnel out of the prison. So I think with that, with the combination of taking over the wing and also trying to escape... I, I, my, yeah, I think um, my boots became too big, so to speak. Peter, I can't be talking to an Englishman trying to escape from a prison via a tunnel and not bring up the great escape. Was there, was there a moment when you were sitting there <laughs> with a baseball in hand as someone was digging a tunnel, thinking to yourself, this is just, this couldn't get any more surreal? Kind of. <laughs> yeah. Next season, next season, don't shoot. You cross a wire with us. What wire? This wire! Yeah, but my baseball rolled over there. How am I going to get my baseball? You first ask permission. Oh, okay. Was, it, was that realistic, though? Was, was digging a tunnel out actually a realistic thing? Because it, it sounds almost comical in a way, but that you were doing it. So it must have had a chance of success. I mean, definitely out of keto, it, it had, a, it had a, a strong uh, percentage of success because it had already been done. There had been several escapes out of keto via tunnel because the prison there was old. 
it was on the side of a hill, uh, well, actually on the, on the side of a volcano. And the ground under the prison was very, you know, it lent itself to being easily dug and easily excavated, shall we say. So we'd bought yes. a cell on B wing, which was mainly the Ecuadorian wing, on obviously on the ground floor, and very close to the end of the wing, which was also the exterior wall of the prison. So we didn't have very far to dig. So we dug out underneath the, the exercise yard and then just followed the line of the wall of the, of the wing towards the, the outer wall and then under the outer wall. We do, we'd got under the outer wall, which is the point at which, unfortunately, we got transferred. Otherwise, we probably would have escaped. There must have been a part of you as you were being transferred out of Quito um, thinking, God, all that wasted effort. Months of excavation goes to waste. Dude, they didn't actually find the tunnel in my time in Quito. They only actually ever found it after when they were digging an, uh, an access road around the perimeter of the prison about a year after I'd been transferred and they came across it. And uh, we were, we had got under the outside wall and it was only really a, a case of us digging it up and out, and we would have been free. Knowing that I was on the way to Guayaquil, which was, at the time, it, I mean, it still is, uh, it was like the third or fourth most dangerous prison in the whole, whole of South America. I mean, the, you know, it was just, the, uh, it was nerve-wracking, to say the least. <laughs> That idea of, of being transferred into one of the most dangerous prisons in the world. Tell us about what actually made that place so dangerous. If you could summarise it for us, I know it's an extraordinarily complex location, but what was it that made it so renowned? First of all, it was huge. Um, there were 26 wings housing 8,000 prisoners. Uh, roughly, well it was, it was split almost equal down the middle. Two rival gangs at war with each other. There were daily gunfights. The gangs were very well organised. They had control of the prison inside and outside completely. They had the director of the prison paid off, all of the guards paid off. They wouldn't let the foreigners get together, so there was no wing for foreigners there they would disperse the foreigners equally throughout the different wings so that we couldn't form any sort of power base. Kept us very much separated from each other. They would extort anyone, local and particularly foreigners coming in, because they just saw them as cash cows. So when you arrived there, you were, they would torture you, put guns to your head, uh, electrocute you, drown you, beat you, up until the point that you paid, basically. They would give you a phone, make you phone your family. On occasion, they, they ended up going too far and killing people. And then they would just hang you up and make it look like a suicide. There were, there were so many guns in that prison, it was unbelievable. Um, and when it became really dangerous was when a third gang who were called the Cholneros, who were who were up and coming in Ecuador, 
a bunch of them got remanded into the prison and ended up on my wing. So the gang that were in control of the, the half of the prison that I was in at the time were called the Cubanos, who were named after three brothers. They didn't like the fact that this other gang, the Choneros, were coming in. They felt threatened by them, thought that they, this new gang would take over the prison and decided to try and kill the boss of, of, of that gang. About 9.30 p.m. one night, we were locked on, locked into the wing, and it just felt funny. I had a German guy in the cell with me. Uh, we were cooking some dinner. One of the gang members from the Choneros has come to me and said, oh, could you do me a plate of food because I was cooking spaghetti bolognese and, you know, it was something different for them. And I said, yeah, sure, no problem. So I've gone to collect a plate from him, uh, brought the food back down, as I get hand him this plate of food, this spaghetti bolognese, one of the other gang members from the Cubanos has used me as cover, unbeknown to me, and opened fire over my right shoulder so the bullets whipped past my head. Shot this guy straight in the face, blown the back of his head out in front of me, and obviously I've just run. Shut the door. My German friend to open the door again to have a look and see what's happening. And a two hour long gunfight has ensued in which two people ended up getting shot dead. There were about 12 or 13 injured. And then the police came in afterwards and tortured us all for another two hours until they got to the bottom of who had done what. Because I'd become quite friendly with the, this new gang, the Choneros, because they were a lot easier to deal with and a lot more educated. I was a target myself. Choneros had put me in charge of selling all the cocaine on the wing. Obviously the Cubanos, who then took charge of the wing again, didn't like this, and I very nearly ended up getting into deep trouble. Tell me about how you managed to escape that. Because at this point in time, there's a, there's a new power on the block. There's been There's been a struggle in which there's been a two-hour gunfight in the middle of a prison, which by itself is an extraordinary thing. And then all of a sudden they're going to clear house and they're getting rid of anyone who was loyal to the previous power group, which includes you. So how do you escape that? Luckily for me, <laughs> I had a woman uh, coming in to visit me uh, who was part of the church at the time. She would just help out coming in to visit foreigners mainly, uh, bringing in food, bringing in money. And um, luckily for me, the day after this shootout, obviously she'd seen it on the news and knew that I was on that wing and was really worried about me and also some of the other foreigners that she was friendly with. So as I hear the, the, the Cubanos going cell to cell, clearing house. We've all been told to stay in our cells on that day as they're clearing, clearing the wing of all the people they don't want on there anymore. So I hear them going door to door, working their way around the wing, getting closer and closer to my cell. And I'm thinking, oh fuck, <laughs> you know, they're gonna come to my door in a minute and I'm gonna be either beaten or, you know, at the very least, I'm going to lose all of my possessions and, and be taken out of the wing. 
you know, I hear them getting gradually close and closer. Boom, 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 boom. You know, people getting beaten, screams, you know, shouts, cheers, just uh, mayhem going on outside the door. And then comes this little knock, knock, knock at the door. And I'm thinking, that's not the gang. I open the door and, there, and there's my visit. And I'm like, what are you doing here? And she said, well, you know, I, uh, you know, I saw on the news what had happened. I was really worried about it. And I'm like, great, come in. <laughs> and I'm like, great, I can't believe her name, her name was Mercedes. I actually changed the name of the book, but her name was Mercedes. And I uh, said, so, oh, God, I'm so glad you're here, Mercedes. And after her being there about 20 minutes, sure enough, boom, 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 there's the gang at the door. I'm like, oh, God, Mercedes is like, oh, my God, who's that? And I said, look, the gang are going around clearing all the people out they don't want on the wing, and I'm going to have a problem right now. And she was like, oh, well, you know, I'll do what I can. So I've opened the door and in South America, like in the prison, the visits were very much respected and females respected even more so. And Mercedes was renowned for helping people, not only foreigners, but also some of the locals. So, you know, they, she was very much highly respected in the prison. So I've opened the door and, you know, all the gang stood there champing at the bit, ready to get, you know, come in. And I could see that there was maybe 15 or 20 of them there. There were handguns wow. drawn. I sort of stepped aside and, they, and they've looked in the cell, seen Mercedes, and they've sort of looked at me, squinted their eyes. And, you know, said, you know, we'll be back. And so obviously the gang have gone off and they've had a, like a bit of a conflab and a discussion about what they're going to do with me. And, uh, you know, Mercedes has stayed with me for a couple of hours to make sure I'm all right. And then she's had to leave. And uh, later in the evening, one of the gang has come back to me and said, look, you know, we, we know that you're a foreigner. You, you, you kind of play both sides of the line. And they said, look, uh, what's going to happen is you're going to have to pay a fine. You know, it was just an excuse to milk more money out of me. So I think I ended up paying something like a thousand dollars and Tell me about what it was like when Mercedes had to leave and and you realise that you're about to be alone and like you say, you have nowhere to go. Yeah, it was really scary. And it was just, you know, I had to deal with it. And um I remember getting called to the to the new boss's uh, new boss's uh, cell. And I've walked in the door and um <laughs> there was this guy called Ar- Armando who was it was who I was actually kind of friendly with anyway. He was their sort of strong man. Uh, they would use him to choke people out, and they would then drown them and hang them up. And you know, he was just a big, big guy, not to be messed with. And uh, I've walked in the door, and the door shuts behind me. And there's Armando who stood behind me, blocking the doorway. So the the new boss on the wing is like, oh, well, you know, we're not sure what we're going to do with you, and. Uh, you know, we think you're going to have to pay a, a fine and, you know, we could kill you if we wanted to. And I said, well, why don't you do it then? Just sort of trying to call his bluff. And, tr- and I'll tell you what, that was the worst thing I could have said. And he was like, OK, you want to die? Well, Armando, go and get the rest of the guys. We're going to kill this guy now. I sh- I shot myself. <laughs> Not literally, but I, I you know, I, I started because he, he, he'd been drinking, he'd been doing coke. And I could tell, I, like, I'd obviously called him out in front of his buddies and, uh, like, it didn't go down well at our fucking tour. 
So Armando comes back with a few other guys and I'm like, look, guys, I was just joking, you know, I didn't really mean it, uh, backtracking. Yeah, I managed somehow to talk myself out of that one as well. I mean, it all came down to money and uh, just just uh, being able to deal with people, having put people skills, I think, has, has saved me on a lot of occasions. Well, Peter, it, it seems to me like it would have had to become an extremely honed skill dealing with people who are incredibly unpredictable and how to calm those people or work with them in a way that would get you through each day. Because when you're dealing with people who are high on drugs, who are completely uh, accustomed to death um, and to murder and to the fragility of life in that environment, it seems to me like it could have been so easy for you to die just by poor luck, let alone by any manufactured circumstance. How do you get through each day when that's hanging over your head all the time? How do you wake up in the morning and just go about your business as you need to with all of that? I think I actually became renowned there as someone that who someone who would actually draw the line with the Ecuadorians. And they nicknamed me Loco Pete, which is Crazy Pete. On numerous occasions, I would actually stand my ground and say, actually, enough is enough. You know, I'm not taking this bullshit. And they would just be amazed that I would actually front them out. You know, take it, pull out a weapon, bring out a knife, a piece of wood. And they, they would just be so shocked that they'd go, this, this foreigner is just crazy. After a while, because of, of you know, that, that wing that I was living on after that gunfight, it did become so unbearable to live on with these new, these new guys that were running it. I actually did move up to a, a wing that was above that wing, uh, which became a wing for mainly foreigners. And also it was just a, a better wing overall. And at that point I was able to establish again a group of foreigners. So we, we were able to establish a, a, a power base for ourselves again. So, you know, safety in numbers is always helpful and it does make a difference to some extent. I mean, my best friend on the wing, Steve, who was an English guy, they ended up killing him because he ended up getting into debt. He was close to the end of his sentence, was due to get parole, and because he was so broken trying to get raise the finance to get out of prison, he decided to do some business uh, with, with the Cubanos gang got into debt of about $150,000 and I was like, Steve, you're mad. That, you know, whatever happens, you're going to end up paying. If the drugs get home, if they don't get home, whatever happens, if they get seized by the police, you will be the one that ends up paying. That is if they even send the drugs in the first place. Because, what you know, one of the things they used to like to do was say, oh, yeah, yeah, come and do some business with us. We'll send the drugs. You know, you've got the people to buy it. They, you know, then you can get the money back to us. But what they would actually do is they would just send an empty crate or an empty box and there'd be nothing in it. And then they say, oh, well, you owe us the money now. You know, and really they had sent nothing. And, you know, suddenly you were $150,000, $200,000 in debt. And they said, look, you've got until a certain day to pay this money back. Otherwise, we're going to come and kill you. And sure enough, that day came and we found him hung in his cell. By 9.30 in the morning, that morning, we, we found him hanging. Tried to resuscitate him, but he was gone. I'd spent an hour or two every day with him for five years. So, and his parole papers arrived about two weeks after and he would have got released. Yeah, that was bad. 
Peter, I'm so sorry. Was there anything that got you through the time more than anything else? It seems to me like in a place like that, you have to have a degree of either humour or some sort of contentment or satisfaction or just something to work toward just to make it bearable. What was that for you in in that place? I I think the the, the fact that I thought I was going to get out every year, every year I I remember ringing my family or every six months and saying, oh, yeah, I'll be out in six months, I'll be out in a year. And then that never came. The six-year point, which was half my sentence, when I should have, by all all accounts, be given uh, parole, and I should have got out, they then came to me and said, because of you trying to escape and this and that and the other, we're only going to give you like something like 11% remission, which, or no, I think it was 9%. Anyway, it was very little, so it, it would have meant I would have done 11 years out of 12 I mean, I ended up doing 10 anyway. So at the halfway point of my sentence, they, they're telling me that basically I'm going to have to restart my sentence and do another five years. My mum died around that time. My auntie died. My cousin in Australia died. Uh, I found Steve uh, hanging in his cell. That was all within a, about a year. I want to contracted TB or I was given TB. Peter, I want to talk about that in just a second, but I just want to touch on the fact that your mum passed away while you were in prison because you'd said that she'd been unwell the first time that you were arrested in the UK. And how did you find out about that while you were, you were over there? And, and when was that in the course of your sentence? She died before I found out that I was going to have to basically restart the sentence, which I was kind of not glad of, obviously. But, I mean, it probably would have killed her anyway. She was an alcoholic, and um, I, I think, you know, obviously the stress of me being in prison in Ecuador didn't help at all. And um, she suffered a heart attack and then basically died because of complications after about three days after having had the heart attack. And that was absolutely devastating for me. I mean, that, that was my worst fear, it became a reality that, you know, one of my family members, particularly my mother, would die whilst I was in prison. Because, I mean, a lot of the reason that I'd become involved with, well, I, I say a lot of the reason, some of the reason that I'd become involved with drug dealing was because I, I'd i always wanted to provide for my family, you know, particularly my mother. You know, I'd always has, had that as, as a driving element um, that I wanted to be able to provide for not only my mum, but my father, my sister, everyone, basically. You know, I, I felt that I, you know, being the only son, it rested on my shoulders, really. So when she died, I mean, that was, yeah, uh, it was just absolutely devastating. And then getting told that I had to restart the sentence, pretty much, um, you know, just it was just one thing after another. I kind of did give up hope of ever really seeing Britain again or, ever, or, or getting out alive. And I think at that point, when when you sort of lose hope of of getting out alive, then that is when I became quite loco, I suppose, or, or crazy. To some extent, I didn't really care. I was more likely to pick up 
you know, a weapon and get into fights, which which is what happened. There's, I guess there's only two ways that you deal with that, that sort of trauma, isn't it? You, you either say, well, nothing matters anymore and I'm going to do whatever I want to do or whatever I need to do and that will be it. Or you find yourself in a position where it's so hopeless that there's no point in continuing. And it's a testament, I think, to your strength of character that you were able to face what no human should ever have to face and to a degree that no one should ever have to endure and decide to choose to continue at that point in time. Because I could think it would be so easy to just say, well, that's it. What's the point? My stepbrother killed himself uh, in 2000 and, uh, when was it? 2004, prior to my getting arrested. So he killed himself, walked in front of a lorry. I was the last person to see him alive, uh, obviously before he left the house to kill himself. And then his cousin, in the same month and the same year, did the same thing. That year before I got arrested, they'd been really heavy two suicides in, in, in the month of November, you know, same in the same month. So for me, suicide was something that I, I saw how devastating that was to the family and it was just something that I just, yeah, something I would never do. But the, there was that one occasion when we'd been transferred out, out of the, the prison that I was in, in Guayaquil to a new prison estate that they built in Guayaquil. And I ended up on a maximum security wing there with absolutely nothing. We had no phones, we had no, I mean nothing. No pens, no paper, no razors. There was no canteen, there was absolutely nothing. There were no visits, there was no mail. We didn't see anyone for about a month and a half and this was running up to Christmas. We got transferred at the beginning of December and we didn't get any visits or any contact with anyone, even the embassy up until mid-January. God knows how I ended up on there, I don't know. I never got to the bottom of that. Um, very strange, but there I was, you know, with the highest security prison prisoners in the whole of Ecuador, basically. So there were 15 of us on a wing that was built for 350. I was in a cell on my own, suffering with the after effects of TB. God knows how I ended up on there, I don't know. I never got to the bottom of that. Could you tell me a little bit about how you contracted tuberculosis? So, every now and then, the Ministry of Health, uh, the Ecuadorian Ministry of Health would come around and give out uh, vaccinations for this, that and the other, you know, malaria, dengue fever. And they came around saying that they were, they were giving out uh, vaccines for tuberculosis. Now, me coming from Britain, I've, I've had all my shots when I was a kid. And I didn't trust what they were giving out. And I was like, no way am I having this injection because I don't know what you're injecting me with. I don't trust you. I just, I'm not up for it. Not at all. Now I'd bought a cell, so I've you know I'm there with my English friend Steve and a couple of other English guys, and I bought a cell, so I've invested in the in the wing. I've got some business going. 
So about 15 of the guys that were running the wing came to me and said, look, if you don't have this injection, we're going we're gonna to take this cell off you and throw you off the wing. We're going to beat the hell out of you. Blah, blah, blah. So I was like, you know what? Fuck it. Uh, just give me the injection. Gave me the injection. And after that, I start getting ill. And probably two or three months after, I'm absolutely fucked. I've lost weight. I've gone from about 80 kilos down to maybe at this point... 60 or 55 I can't walk more than about 10 or 10 or 50 meters without just feeling completely shattered got no energy my appetite's gone I'm starting to get fever I'm obviously ill I've obviously got TB there's an outbreak of TB all throughout the prison but different strains of TB on different wings now, bearing in mind, they've just come around and supposedly given out a vaccination for TB, and suddenly there's a huge increase in, in the rate of TB throughout the prison. And I'm diagnosed after months and months of saying, I'm sick, I'm sick, and them saying, no, you've got a cold, you've got flu, you've got this, you've got that. They eventually diagnosed me, I think it was after, after nearly a year of suffering like this, with bovine multidrug-resistant TB. Now, I've not been anywhere near a cow in six years at this point. So how have I suddenly contracted bovine multidrug resistant TB? Obviously, these injections that they've given to us were live TB. Now, I wasn't sure initially, but after a while they started handing out loads of uh, cutting-edge retroviral drugs, which cost, I think it was like something like £25,000, not dollars, per patient yes. per year and you have to have a minimum year's treatment now you have to bear in mind I'm in a prison where they won't even give you an aspirin for free or a paracetamol nothing they won't give out any medication for free you have to bribe a guard so you have to pay a guard to go and see the doctor who you have to then pay to talk to who you then have to pay to write a prescription you then have to pay someone to bring that prescription out to a pharmacy get the medication which you have to pay for to, then pay someone to bring it back into the prison. So you get my point. And suddenly, in the healthcare centre, there's boxes and boxes of all this really expensive, cutting-edge pharmaceuticals for TB that they're handing out like Smarties. And the manufacturer's labels, I noticed, because I started thinking, well, this is weird. And the manufacturer's labels changed at least four times in the three years that I was on the medication. When we start questioning the, the, all of this and we get transferred to the new prison estate, all of our medical files get burnt, disappear. I mean, it was just obvious that they were testing the drugs on us. That's why you hear me coughing throughout the, the interview every now and then, because I've, I've now since been diagnosed with COPD because of um, lung scarring from the TB. Peter, when you... Um... When you found out that you were going to be released, there must have been a part of you that didn't believe it. After everything you'd been through up until that point. My, my parents, well, my dad and my stepmom had, had just got sick to the back teeth of me saying, oh, I'm going to be out next year and having to send money over and, and just the ongoing worry about me surviving it and me being ill. And when I was sentenced to the 12 years uh, in Quito, they also put with the, with the sentence um, uh, a $8,000 fine. Now, we later discovered that 
for me to be repatriated back to Britain, that fine had to be paid. So I was quite adamant that I wouldn't come back to Britain because, you know, for for the sake of paying $8,000 to come back to Britain to then possibly be resentenced to 25 years in Britain, because throughout the whole sentence in Ecuador, I had hanging over me the case in Britain, which was for 85 kilos, a conspiracy case for 85 kilos of cocaine and like £4 million. And I didn't know whether or not I was going to be resentenced in Britain. So I did. I really didn't want to come back to Britain. So in the end, you know, my stepmom said, look, I've had enough. I'm going to pay, pay the $8,000 fine. We're going to bring you back. And I was like, OK. But you have to understand that I might get sentenced to another 20 or 25 years. And they were like, we don't care. We just want to see you back in Britain alive. So I was like, right, OK. So, you know, I'm then having to sort of get get my head around the fact that I might be going home to, you know, face the British legal system and, and you know, a hell of a long time in prison in Britain. Only when I actually finally got released out of Wandsworth Prison in London, even up until the day that I walked out of the gate, I thought I was going to get uh, re-arrested, you know, as I walked out of the gate. That was one of the worst things as well, right throughout the sentence, the thought of that. Every day, I would, at some point in the day, that would come into my mind. You know, are the British going to prosecute me when I get back? The British police came to Ecuador four times to collect evidence, DNA evidence, to question me, to threaten me, you know, and, and to make sure that I wasn't getting out, basically. It's over an extraordinarily long period of time as well you know, like over nine years to be on that radar for that entire period and then to still be living with that uncertainty right up until the very last day. I just don't know how someone gets through that, Peter. I, re- I really don't. Like it's, you, you seem really calm when you're talking about it and, and so um, so accepting of that situation. But it, it must, now that you're back in, I guess, a more normal world, you must be able to appreciate just how extraordinarily surreal and volatile and dangerous and exceptional that circumstance was relative to every other existence. How do you come to terms with that? You know, walking back into normal life where you go and get a coffee from a cafe and you know, you're in a line of people waiting to pay $4 for a flat white and have breakfast out and enjoy the sun or the cold in England and you're just living a normal day and you've been through all of this. You know, like, I'm trying to imagine how somebody can just walk back into the normal world after that. Definitely took me a while to readjust after I got out. Um, I mean, coming back to Britain, I, I never thought I would experience culture shock because I was coming back to my own culture, you know, being British. Um, but having spent so long in, in, in a third world country in Ecuador, uh, coming back to Britain and arriving in, I think it was November and just prior to Christmas, it was a huge culture shock for me. Just the amount of waste packaging and the, the amount of food that was thrown away. In Ecuador, nothing was wasted. Any, anything that was left on your plate, you would offer to somebody and someone was always hungry and someone would always eat it. There was, there was so little waste being bombarded with all the advertising for pre-Christmas, you know, and all the consumerism was really quite disturbing. 
Well, I found it quite difficult to deal with. When I eventually got out, you know, and, and came back to Gloucestershire, to my home area, it was quite surreal. And, and I think one of the main things that helped me, really, was writing the book and has allowed me to sort of put a lot of it to bed because I sort of had to go through it and relive it and put it down on paper. And it, and it was, you know, it was very emotional. But it definitely helped a lot. Someone was talking to me the other day that had just read the book literally a week ago and finished it. And they had quite a lot of questions and they were asking me questions about things. And I'd forgotten that I'd written about it. So it's obviously worked in, in, in some sort of sense, uh, uh, sort of self-healing. When you're looking to the future now, where, where, do you, where do you find yourself looking? Because you have an extraordinary skill set in dealing with people, in setting up complex organisations, in surviving. And it, I'm interested in, in where your path leads from here. So at the moment, um, I'm working towards, I'm going to be doing some talks. I mean, I had started doing some talks at some schools and colleges uh, for pupils that have been excluded from mainstream education to try and stop them making the same or going down the same road that I have. I'm also going to be doing some talks for universities and stuff like that. But I would, a big part of me would like to get into sort of peer mentoring and, you know, a lot more of that kind of work and trying to stop uh, people becoming involved in drug dealing. I mean, I, I kind of go in with the approach that it's, it's up to you what you do with your life and it's up to you whether or not you want to take drugs, but you need to understand that if you do, or certainly if you become involved in the selling of drugs, this is what could happen and what may well happen to you. And trust me, you don't want it to happen. <laughs> there are much better things you could be doing with your life than spending half of it in prison. From all of us here at The Risk Equation, we'd like to extend a thanks to Peter for sharing his story. To learn more about Peter Tritton, search for his book, El Inferno. It gives an even greater insight into the details of Peter's time in Ecuador, the aftermath and his final stint in the UK. If you haven't already, follow us on Instagram by searching for The Risk Equation Podcast. Thanks again for listening.